This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. You know, not everyone wakes up in the beginning of their lives and says, oh my gosh, I want to be in specific a plant-based chef. Even though I think with people like us out in the world, I think we might be able to influence the youth a little bit more with just bringing this to the forefront. But what were those early influences? Was your diet always plant-based? Was there a teacher or something on TV or just anything along the line that kind of gave you clues to not only plant-based, but then actually moving into this? for a career path? So I would say I probably had it a little more easier than most. I'm first generation Indian American. I'm specifically Maharashtrian and the type of cooking we make at home and do, it's really actually, a lot of it is vegan by default. We never called it vegan. It was really just called food, but we eat a lot of different vegetables. A lot of it is just very lightly sauteed. We eat a lot of legumes and breads and rice. And so we, I've been exposed to a lot of vegetables at a very early age. So I got accustomed to eating a lot of vegetables throughout my day without kind of thinking twice about it. And I, when I was little, I would always get confused as to why other kids hated vegetables. And I was like, I like love eating at home. I love food and I love all these types of vegetables. I just didn't understand why. And it occurred to me later that it's much more of an afterthought in, I would say, most Western households. And it was very different in my household, given the background that I'm from. So it started very early for me. And then it turned more into a focus point and then an actual career much later in my life, because it wasn't until after college. Now that's many years ago. Don't want to age myself too much here. But after college, when actually I became full vegetarian, and the only reason that I even ate chicken or became a chicketarian, as we like to call it in my household when I was younger, is because there were so many limited options in the 90s, even growing up in New York City. When you would go out to eat, there would be very limited options or zero options in hanging out with friends and socializing and being at school. There really weren't any vegetarian options. So we started introducing chicken and then some seafood, but it wasn't until college that I stopped cold one day and and went back to being completely vegetarian. And then that's when I actually started my blog. And the intent of my blog, chefpriyanka.com, was to educate people, mainly my generation and people in the Western world, as to how, how delicious vegetarian-focused food can be. And the reason why I did that is because when I started going out to eat as a vegetarian, even as an adult... I would go to a restaurant and say like, oh, you know, I'm a vegetarian. What are my options? And I would ask the waiter, waitress or the hostess. And they would be like, well, you know, we have the salads or like a side dish. And I was like, why would I why would I come to a restaurant and eat a salad? I never grew up eating a salad as a main dish. And why would I come to a restaurant and eat a side dish? Like it was just it boggled my mind that these were our choices. So that's what kind of um, pushed me to start the blog and and start making kind of the culinary life of mine into more of a career. Wow. Yeah, you definitely had it easy. <laughs> and I, I kind of in the back of my mind, I was thinking like, you know what, she might have had it a little bit easy. But it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I feel I feel bad saying that. But that's that's the truth, right? It's very cultural. And I think if there's there's a lot of cultures, you know, outside and I, when I say Western world, I'm mainly talking about the US and I think there's just a lot more focus on vegetables 
and grains and legumes outside of the U.S. because many times, especially in the case of India, like that's many times what you have access to and that's many times what you grow. And then on top of that, I'm Hindu and I grew up Hindu and a huge philosophy around Hinduism is also not eating meat. So there's many reasons why I'm very plant-focused and it's, it's mainly rooted in culture. And then my decision to go completely now vegan is not only the cultural aspect and educational aspect of teaching other people, but it's an ethical and environmental aspect to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting though, because when you start to think about healthy eating around the country or around the world, I find it so interesting that you said that New York didn't really have the options because my mom's from New York. And so I spent a lot of time there. I moved there for college and lived there for 11 years. But that was like, in the 2000s. And that's actually what helped me to really, really, really dig into this plant-based thing because of the options that were there. And I feel like I just got into New York at the right time <laughs> to be able to do this because it, it really was, I mean, gosh, like the East Village and all of these places just had all of these different options. So yeah, I, I just find that really, really interesting, um, you know, that it wasn't always that way. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... It's gotten so much better here, especially over the past 10 years since I've started my blog and, and to now. And obviously, like veganism is trending. And, and as much as I don't like trends, and I hope it's not just a trend because trends aren't permanent, gotten a lot better. But it's still, I, I don't know. I mean, I was still shocked even back then. I'm in the one of the largest cities in the world. It's most diverse, like, et cetera, et cetera. But I found it difficult to find a substantial vegetarian or, you know, vegan meal without having to eat something in what I like to call rabbity. Like I just, I personally don't like salads. I find that they require way too much chewing and I get very tired <laughs> eating them. So I just like, I don't want to eat a salad for a main dish. Wow. That is, that might be the, we are like almost, we're only like 10 minutes in and that might be like the gem of <laughs> the conversation. I love this. I love this perspective. I love going against the grain. Someone who is plant-based, she's like, no, salads aren't really my thing. Oh my gosh. Cause I mean, think about it. I feel like salads is interesting. You say that because salads, I feel is something that is the first thing that people think about with plant-based and veganism and just healthy eating in general. And it's the first thing that they feel like they need to necessarily suffer through or, you know, along the lines of that. So for someone to kind of come out and say, yeah, I'm not really like a, a big fan of salads when usually that's the entry point for people. So it's just so, I, I have big teeth. They get stuck in my teeth. It's like so much chewing. It's just like, I just didn't grow up eating that kind of stuff. So it, to me, it was just like, why are we eating a bowl? <laughs> and lettuce? your New York accent comes out. She's like, I've got big teeth. It just. <laughs> Seriously, you it literally sounded like my mom just now. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's raising her voice. Yeah, she's going in. She's going in. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, you know what? That's interesting. I'll kind of segue into just some some more thoughts when it comes to, you know, that entry level meal or that entry level snack for someone who's not a big proponent of salads. 
what would you suggest for folks really wanting to incorporate more plant-based foods into their diet? Like, what would that be that first thing that's not complicated, you know, or obscure to prepare, that's super tasty, easy? What, what do they do first? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Although it gets a bad rep, I am a huge advocate for carbs, bread, and rice and grains. Like, I think... Of course, I understand if someone has celiac and, you know, they have to be gluten free and stuff like that, that that I respect. But I do eat a substantial amount of of carbs and legumes and grains. So I have not only a focus on vegan cooking, but on sustainable cooking. So low waste, zero waste cooking. So I love repurposing leftovers. And uh, what I mean by that is like if I go out to eat or if I order takeout, many times when you order from an Asian or Indian restaurant, it comes with like a shit ton of white rice or brown rice. And usually you're not finishing all of it because it's so much. And I, I'm going to say another controversial thing in addition to the salad as an Indian person, I'm not a huge lover of white rice. (laughs) I I know. They're like, fuck this girl. No, this is Um, great. I, I'm not a huge like lover of white rice, but then that's what pushes me to recreate it into different things. So a dish that I generally suggest for people is if you have any sort of leftover white rice, you can turn it into uh, like a quote unquote Indian fried rice and you can saute it with cumin seeds, red chili. You could put any sort of protein in there, whether it be chickpea or lentils or tofu, mixed vegetables. I actually add a little bit of flaxseed to it to help bind it a little bit to make it thicker and add some like more nutrients and omega-3s. And I basically just saute it really quick and add in some different masalas. And that's like a pretty hearty Indian sort of fried rice. And it has all of the components from protein to carbs to fiber, it covers off on everything. And it's it's pretty substantial. That's something that I'll eat for lunch because it really holds me over. But I generally recommend that as kind of like a first dish for people to make because they usually have some sort of like leftover fried like rice in a takeout container in their fridge most of the time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Wow, so out of just everything you just spoke about, how much of that can we find in your book, The Modern Tiffin? Well, there will be no salads. No. <laughs> the Modern Tiffin is like a culmination of not only my background, which I mentioned is Indian American, but my life. So I've traveled fairly extensively to about 40 countries globally. It's not as much compared to other people. And it would have been a lot more, obviously, had we not had the pandemic. But through my travels, I really learned a lot about not only the culture of those places, but you can really learn about the culture through food. So what they eat on a day-to-day, what their agriculture is like, what they're eating on the street, like street food. I love street food. So each chapter actually focuses on a different region or country or part of the world that I've visited. So there's like 11 chapters and there'll be like a Mexican Tiffin chapter. So every recipe in there is inspired by my travels throughout Mexico. Then there's an Australian Tiffin and it's inspired by my travels throughout Australia. And every dish could be portable. That's the whole point of the Tiffin aspect. And every recipe is portioned for two people. And that was very intentional and it goes against the grain of a traditional cookbook, which is usually four to six or eight to 10 people, because I want people to find it approachable, easy to make and really fit into their lifestyle. And 
the last time I checked, like I'm not really cooking for eight to 10 people, you know, as an independent millennial woman in New York City. And I guarantee there's a lot of people like that as well. So yeah, that's kind of the structure of the book. And it's obviously all vegan. And there's a lot of sustainability tips and kind of low waste tips cooking throughout because I think that's equally as important as being plant based. Yeah, it's interesting. I either do recipes depending upon what they are for two people, literally build everything for two people because you're absolutely right. Most people are not making these huge big things. And there's a lot of reasoning behind that, number one, because mainly because they are discovering all of this stuff and experimenting themselves. So no one wants to make something for eight portions if they don't even know if they're necessarily going to rock with it and the people around them are going to necessarily rock with it. And I think also now, you know, that you know, there's not really as as many like parties and just people are more inside, then you really not going to make things for that amount of people because other people used to do it because they would go to work and say, okay, well, I made this and, you know, share it with, with their coworkers and stuff like that. So definitely behind the two Uh, person recipe deal I think that's super smart especially for a book I feel like you're going against the grain with that which is awesome and I think that as an Indian American people would expect you to automatically make this all about Indian vegan food so I'm I'm super excited about that I think it's incredible what what gave you the idea of doing that was it really just the traveling the traveling came first you're just like okay why wouldn't I just do something different I think I've had the idea for the modern Tiffin for a while. And I think most people who end up writing books, especially like cookbooks, they've had the ideas for a while. And I grew up travel. I was fortunate enough to travel since since being a baby. I went to India every single year of my life since being two to three months old. And I was fortunate to travel outside of India, even internationally with my family a lot. So I learned about food and different cultures at a very young age. And then I kind of took that with me as I grew up. And about five or six years ago, I set a personal goal for myself to try and travel to two or three new countries every year, regardless of how I would do it. So for instance, the reason why I went to Australia was because my oldest sister was going for a work trip. And she was like, Oh, I'm going to Australia. And I was like, cool, can I come? And she was like, No, and I was like, but I like want to come. And she was like, it's, I'm going for work. But I kind of just invited myself on her trip. And she worked, but I spent my time basically just exploring wherever I could while I was there. And the reason why I bring that up is because it's not necessarily easy to travel to all these places, especially on your own, because it could be expensive, it requires time, it requires flexibility. But I've sort of found different ways to do it because at the end of the day, life is short and I want to spend my time valuably. And to me, that is traveling. So a lot of that was organically happening. And then about two or three years ago, when I had the idea for the book, I was like, you know, a lot of my culinary style and the recipes that I put out there are so heavily influenced by my travels that it only makes sense to incorporate that into my book. And I don't also want to be pigeonholed as To your point, like, yes, someone who is of Indian background, oh, they're going to make Indian food. And I constantly get asked that now. And I'm like, no, I don't just make Indian food because that's not who I am. So the book is like a true reflection of, of me as a person. That's why it kind of transpired to be that way. Yeah. Awesome. Speaking of you as a person, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk TV. You spent some time on TV, which I really think is um, 
awesome, especially for just representing not only everything else that falls under who you are, but really about just the plant-based movement and to really, you know, push that forward. So can you talk a little bit about just the TV experience and just how, I, I know you did two in specific, one for Food Network and then one for the, I think you pronounce it Quibi, Kibi, Kibi Network? Quibi. 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 Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I know that one is just, that one is wild. So I'd love to hear about both of those experiences and just how that's kind of really propelled you into just all of the work that you're doing now. Yeah, the TV stuff has been really, really interesting. I competed on a show on Food Network in 2017, which feels like 100 years ago at this point now, but in 2017 called Cooks versus Cons. And I don't even think it exists anymore, mainly because they probably have to change the name because everyone was like, Cooks versus Cons? Like, you were a convict? You went to jail, Priyanka? Oh and I was God. like, no, no, I didn't go to jail. Like, what the hell? It means like, professional chef versus amateur chef so like con artist um didn't hit well yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and i was like that's probably why it's not on anymore because they need to like rebrand or something i don't know but i i won that show and i was obviously in the category of amateur chef because i'm self-taught and i also don't work as an ex executive chef or line cook at a restaurant my experience is very different but the journey to getting on that show was very interesting because everyone is like, oh, you've been on TV. That's so cool. Did someone approach you? And I'm like, no, I I auditioned my took us off for a long time to get on to a Food Network show. And before I even got on to that, I was rejected two or three times. And the first time I was rejected was because I myself didn't have a strong branding or concept. So that was on me. But the other times that I was rejected was because they told me that the network wasn't ready for a vegetarian cook. At the time, I was cooking all vegetarian, not yet vegan. And they said, you know, the net they're not ready for someone who's vegetarian. So, like, we don't think it's going to work. Or the shows were not looking for someone who had, quote, unquote, restrictions in how they cook. And I don't like hearing the answer no, obviously. And I use that kind of more as fuel instead of discouragement. And I was like, you know, this is really annoying. Like, I feel like I have a really strong skill set. I think I could teach people and I think I'm pretty good on camera. There's no reason why I shouldn't be on TV was kind of my mindset. And that sounds very cocky. But like, at the end of the day, if you, if you know you have something to offer and you want to share it with people, then you're going to try your level best to do whatever it takes to get on. So after finding different shows to audition for, I finally found this one, Cooks vs. Cons. And actually, I think they, at this point, reached out to me about it because I had been in their database. And finally, I got on the show and I won. And then that's what really helped propel my visibility, not only in the culinary space, because it's also a challenge to continuously prove yourself as a self-taught chef, but then also in the TV and media space. And it just showed, well, you don't need to go to culinary school and you don't need to have a traditional path and you don't need to cook meat to be able to consider someone who's really good at what they do. And so I sort of use that as a way to then build credibility in the space. And then that sort of helped me take off. From there, I was featured in a bunch of editorial places like GQ and I had got a bunch of different brand deals. And then in 2020, I was on the show called Dismantled, which is the one you're referring to, which originally aired on Quibi, 
but I don't think Quibi exists anymore, so it's now on Roku TV. But it's a really fascinating show that's hosted by Titus Burgess. And my judges on that show were Anthony from Queer Eye and Dan from Schitt's Creek. So, like, really cool people. And that show was only, like, six or seven minutes long because that was the original concept of Quibi. But you're dressed up in a hazmat suit. You have goggles on. Everything is covered. You can't smell anything. You can't see anything. And you're put into a gigantic tube with your competitor. And they shoot a dish at you from six cannons, like a dish that you don't know what it is. And they shoot it at you. And the only thing you could do is touch it and taste it. And you have like a minute or two to figure out in there what you think it is. Then they drag you outside, like strip you down of your hazmat suit, like hose you down and throw you in the kitchen, basically. And then you have 30 minutes to recreate what you thought was the dish. So I won that show, um, funny enough. Wow. And so that's sort of then like, it's all fun to do. But from there, I then like ended up, I host a show on Tastemade and Food Network Kitchen called Dish It Healthy, which is definitely more in line with who I am. And there's all these other things in the works. But yeah, it's been a very interesting TV journey. I've also been on the Today Show and um, all these other funny things. But TV is a funny place. Yeah, it definitely is. But I think you're great for it. And it's interesting because you started off saying that the Food Network accused you of not having a strong brand. And I think that I definitely can see just stylistically how you've definitely made a thing out of these red glasses it's a part of the logo it's a part of the branding so they definitely cannot accuse you of that now I think you're very consistent with just the colorfulness and just your personality and energy everything just really comes together great so mission accomplished um, on that for sure I'm almost glad they said that to me and this is like years ago right this was like 20 yeah 15 or something Mm. they said to me and I'm glad they said that to me because then it helped me it helped me build my brand and the glasses thing is because the reason why I became a branding thing, which I know this is not a brand conversation, but you might find this helpful, but I wear glasses all the time. I have terrible vision, even though my mom stuffed carrots down our mouth when we were little thinking that the beta carotene would help. It, it did not. It's hereditary. So we all have terrible vision, but I have like 15 pairs of glasses and it's just like kind of what I do. And when I was going on the food network show, they had told me for that particular show that I really can't wear makeup because your identity is supposed to be hidden. Like you're supposed to all look like chefs or like line cooks. And I was like, yo, what the hell? I'm not gonna go on TV and look like a greasy brown girl with no makeup on. Like this is like my national TV debut. So I was like, I need something to like look different or to at least stand out. So I just wore my red glasses and then that's how people started recognizing me. Like I was getting tweeted at like, oh, you're the you're the girl I saw on Food Network with the red glasses. So then I was like, OK, like it worked. I think I'll stick with this. So that's kind of that's kind of how it came about. I love it. It's super smart. Hopefully Zenny or Lens Crafters or someone is going to give you a call soon or Chanel or anyone. I mean, gosh, there's so many. Well, these are guys. yeah, these are these are Mew Mew. So, uh, you know, I'm still waiting for their call. But. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely shout out to any of our <laughs> glasses folks in the building. I want to talk quickly about being self-taught and not being self-taught. I find it really interesting that for plant-based, for veganism and chefing that 
really anyone would even think that classical training is so much of a requirement. Yes, you get knife skills and different skills that you can kind of transfer into making plant-based dishes. But for someone like me who is also self-taught, I've worked in a lot of restaurants, traditional and otherwise, ran a cafe as well. So I do have some of that back of the house experience. But again, I find it really interesting that those type of requirements would even be on the table for something that is really just now starting to evolve to even have a curriculum. I mean, that's why I started Superfood School. There's no blueprint for this. So how do you even kind of create a specification for this when it, it, it doesn't really exist? So so shout out to you for helping to, to move that forward. Yeah, I think and I think what you're doing is awesome. I don't think there's any requirement for any requirement creative field that you need to do this, you need to do that. I think especially with the culinary field, um, I know a ton of self-taught cooks and and chefs. And I know there's a lot of uh, controversy or debate around like, can you call yourself a chef if you, you know, haven't been to culinary school and haven't worked in a restaurant. And I think I have a fairly strong argument for being self-taught. I made that decision very intentionally I looked at Johnson and Wales and CIA and the others in high school, and I spoke to the representatives. I did a ton of research. And at the end of the day, I would be required to, you know, butcher and cook meat and eat it. And that was really against my philosophy. I also found out that Asian cuisine, all of Asia, there might be other schools that do differently, but for the ones I was looking at, was lumped into maybe maximum a week. And I was like, what the hell? You can't even learn like the style of cooking we do at home in a week, let alone all of Asia. And one of the reasons why I love to cook and why I taught myself to cook was because of my culture. So why would I go completely against that? And it it just didn't make sense to me. And then the other thing is that culinary schools, while they're all they're awesome and they teach you all cool skills and, and whatnot and but it's, it's European derived. It's mainly French and Italian derived, which again, nothing wrong with that, but that's not the reason why I personally mm-hmm. like to cook and taught myself to cook. Mm, definitely. I, I didn't even think about it from that perspective. So yeah, this is a new world and it's just something that I think is just, just evolving. So for someone who doesn't have this, you know, restaurant background per se, what are your thoughts on just the future of your brand? Would you open a restaurant or be a part of a restaurant or what are other thoughts and ideas that you're kind of having for other products? Yeah, this is a great question because prior to the pandemic, I actually hosted several pop-ups and I used to do this usually at empty venues, like industrial venues, or even with restaurants because I wanted to get a feel for what it would be like, what restaurant operations is like, and also what the what the market thinks about my food. And while I loved hosting pop-ups and doing that, I don't think having a brick and mortar place or a restaurant is in the immediate, immediate future, because I also don't know like what the future is of restaurants, especially since the pandemic, since there's been so much change and so many things have been digitized and just like just the general culture around restaurants is changing. I kind of want to see where it goes and then figure out what I would do from there. I would love to eventually have a place where people can go and have my food, especially people who don't have access to me or live in a different place. I think it would be really cool. But for the immediate future, looking more to not only having my own show on TV eventually in the near future, because I think 
mass media is the best way to educate folks um, on plant-based cooking and sustainable cooking, as well as my culture. But I also think it's a lot of fun. And from there, with more exposure, I'm hoping to actually build more productization around like my brand and actually maybe sell something aside from the cookbook that people can have within their own homes and in their kitchens. So restaurants aren't on the immediate plan, but eventually. And I think if you are in this space, hosting pop-ups and working with different restaurateurs is a great way to learn about the business and to see where your skill set lies. Because I personally, like, if anyone knows about restaurant operations, like, it is not a walk in the park. And mm-hmm. to be honest, it is not mm-hmm. something that I'm, like, gung-ho about. No, I mean, I did anything to not do that after dealing with it people like oh you're a chef and it's interesting because most people ask about two different things and I think you fall in this category as well where you know people are thinking like you're either a personal chef like oh well can you come cook for me you know five days a week or it's well what restaurant are you at or when are you going to open a restaurant it's all about exactly you know it's all about literal service which is great we need that as opposed to just education and empowerment. And I think that is so important, you know, in the space that we're in. And that requires more education because people think, okay, well, you just need to cook for me. You just need to cook for me. Actually, like, no, you kind of need to cook for yourself, especially when it comes to this, because you you can't find this everywhere. So you really have to figure it out. So, you know, we're, we're, we're shepherds of the, of the movement, I feel. Yeah. And even on that, I've done very high-end private catering in partnership with another chef. We catered to really high-end celebrities, and that was another route that I was exploring. And I, quite frankly, just did not like it because depending on who you're catering for, what you're doing, it can be very stifling from a creativity standpoint. I'm not going to mention any names, but I catered once for a very famous individual in conjunction with another chef, and they were like, They don't like anything green. And I'm like, okay, they literally cannot eat a single thing that I make because there's always going to be something green in something I make. But I just find it funny because in this world, there's so many paths that you can take within the culinary world. And I've pretty much explored, I would say, if not a lot of them, all of them. And that's kind of how I've come to this path. I think education, to your point, is so needed and it also is a an area that I'm very good at. So that's kind of why I'm sticking to that, that route and that path. Absolutely. They didn't want anything green. Yeah, I've definitely got some um, behind the scenes stories of things regarding that. I think with any profession, though, there's one part skill, and you can do the skill till the cows come home, and you're great at that. But then the other part is how you're applying this skill. And so there's so many different levels, you know, of chefing that have different levels of interaction with people. Or if you're a recipe developer, you're literally just a mad scientist where you just kind of don't have to do much with people and you're in the house and you're making things. But then if you're, you know, a restaurant chef, then you have to deal with this entire team for this specific amount of time and all these other variables that are coming into play. And then if you're doing the private chefing for high profile people, then you have to deal with maybe that manager, that one representative or the the handler of the person. And then it's all these different things coming from one person. So there's different pressures, you know, that come along with it. And I think that just like anything else, there's, it's like pick your poison, right? (laughs) Yeah. 
I just couldn't deal with the like, I don't eat anything green. I'm like, yo, how old are you? Like five? Like this is like, all right, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> like, just I any, can't do this. <laughs> yeah. Anything in specific. When it comes to creativity and just thinking of recipes, what would be A, your most creative recipe in your opinion? Okay. And then B, what has been one of the most popular recipes that can be found on your Instagram where you were just like, oh my God, wow, people love it. Or or maybe there's one where you really thought that this one was going to hit and you're like, wow, no, this didn't take off. But talk about kind of like recipe wins or, or losses, so to speak, because you know we don't all bat perfectly, right? <laughs> yeah, I like this question. I obviously like all my recipes. They're all my babies. <laughs> no, no. One of my most popular recipes for good and bad reasons is this recipe that I developed last year called a watermelon quote-unquote ceviche and it's just a riff on ceviche using watermelon and it went really viral on TikTok and on Instagram for both good and bad reasons and it's probably been one of my most recreated recipes meaning like out of all the recipes that I see people tagging me in that they've made from my repertoire of recipes, this is the one that's been made the most because it's really simple and it's quite good. But the reason why, for bad reasons, that it also went viral is because it rubbed a lot of people, especially in the Latino and South American community, the wrong way because they were like, that is not ceviche. What are you talking about? You could at least use hearts of palm. This is just wrong. And I was like, oh my goodness, obviously it's not meant to be ceviche. Ceviche is fish based and this is not, I don't eat fish. It's a vegan version. So it went viral for both good and bad reasons, but that is the most popular recipe of mine, which it's just watermelon, lime juice, scallions, jalapenos, fresh coriander, really good quality olive oil, salt and pepper. And I make a variation actually where I add in raw mango and I put it on top of like a tostada. You can eat it on its own with some chips as a ceviche, but it's really good and it's great for summertime. So that's my most popular one. I wouldn't say that's my most creative one because it's so easy. Um, my most creative recipe, in my opinion, is probably my crispy stuffed poblano with radish fritters and a cilantro crema. And the reason why I like this recipe is because it's low waste and it combines Mexican and Indian flavors. So you stuff the poblano as you would in a traditional Mexican dish, except instead of cheese, what I do is I use leftover rice. You all know I love leftover rice here. And I saute that with veggies and flaxseed and some jalapeno and just different flavors. I stuff it into the poblano. And then here's where the Indianish part comes in. I actually batter it in a basin flour batter. So that's a chickpea flour batter, which is typically used to make pakoras. And I make a basin flour batter. I batter the whole poblano in it. And then I fry it up. Obviously, that's not the healthiest, but that's the only way to get the best crisp. You can try and air fry it. And then I do the same thing with thinly sliced radish. And I put it in the batter, fry it. And then I top it with the cilantro crema and the crispy radish and some fresh radish and some sunflower seeds. And it's pretty bomb. I developed this earlier this year. And then I made it for a Bon Appetit series that I was in for the spring. So it's been quite popular since then. But I just like combining different cultures, too. I think it's just fun. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm definitely like that. And I think especially because 
we're dealing with just plants, we kind of have to crisscross across the world and kind of find those flavors and find those things and bring them together. Because as far as just what people generally eat, it's been reduced (laughs) greatly. And when you look across just the world in the same type of climate zone, and I learned this a lot living in Mexico, it's interesting you say just the correlation between Mexico and India. Same thing that I found where, for example, there's lots of mangoes, there's neem trees, same thing. So it's just just trying to figure out like how to cross it over even more to make it delicious. And these days, everyone's palate is just completely spoiled so to speak yeah and I actually talk about this a lot in my book especially in the Mexico chapter because my family and I we love Mexican food and I think it's because there's so many ingredients that are exactly the same they're just prepared in a different way and the other kind of cool thing about when you think about it that way is that the world becomes much smaller right like we're all we're all much more similar and connected than people think that we are we're really not that different and I think food is the best indicator of that you know Mexican culture and Indian culture in many ways is is very similar even outside of just food so I think food is like a really cool way to see how like connected we are to also understand where ingredients are indigenous from versus not. It's very humbling when you actually learn about that. So I talk about a lot of that connectivity in my book too. Definitely. Just building bridges through food. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Just want to thank you so much for hopping on and chit-chatting. I'm excited about the book and just excited about just where you continue to go and look forward to collaborating. You're a lot of fun and I would love to uh, chit chat and do more. You're awesome. Thank you so much. This is so great. And it's awesome that you just continue supporting all of us and giving us this platform to share our story and share yummy food and get people excited about thinking about plant-based food differently and thinking about the way they cook in their home. Learn more at superfoodschool.org.